Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. One. My guest today is Brian Krim, who has written the book Operation Paperclip about the secret operation to bring Nazi scientists to America. And thank you, first of all, thank, thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk about Paperclip. So I, I also ask you in these case scenarios, what, what made you write a book about Operation Paperclip? Well, I started in graduate school where I took a, what's called a diplomatic history seminar, and I knew theoretically about Paperclip, the idea of taking German scientists and using their expertise to perfect uh, American defense projects, but I didn't really know the details until I started investigating what was out there as far as documents. And then starting in um, the late 2000s, 2009, 2010, the National Archives in the United States started to release millions of more documents relating to the exploitation of the Third Reich in the final years of uh, war and in the early occupation of Germany. And within that, there were hundreds of thousands of documents about paperclip, including 1,500 foreign scientist case files that no one had ever seen before. So I started to look into those. And every time I had a chance to do some research, I went to look at those files and noticed that there's a real fascinating complex portrait of this operation that in previous literature uh, was not really portrayed, mostly because the documents weren't there. So I was really the first historian to get into those released documents in 2010, 2011, till the time that I I wrote the book and published the book. So how how did this come out? How did the Operation Paperclip become public today? And what, what, what were your, and how do you feel reading through these files personally? Yeah, personally, it's really tough. I think the problem is that Paperclip was always a sensationalized story because the people who wrote about it most were investigative journalists. And so they were out to shock people with the, you know, the, the uh, exceptional stories about how we had, you know, died in the wool Nazis working in, the, working in the United States, some of them actual war criminals, and there was a certain amount of that. But for the most part, these were, um, you know, highly educated German scientists, all of them with some sort of Nazi affiliation, or they couldn't have gotten where they were. And they were just really uh, drones in a way. And I, and even though I've had, of course, moral objections to the program, I found it to be far more ordinary than spectacular when you got to who really stayed for the duration, including the infamous Werner von Braun, who, while he did have an SS rank, uh, was really just um, a dreamer, someone who was uh, used his position cynically to to 
to get what he needed, both in the Third Reich and the United States. I found it to be almost shocked. What shocked me about Paperclip was not how much of it was hidden, but how much of it was out, actually out in the open. I mean, we, the United States revealed Paperclip as early as 1946, within months of it actually mm. being approved. They tried to control the story. They brought in the reporters and said, look at this. But it wasn't a secret for very long. And that, I think, maybe was more shocking than the fact that it was um, the, less, the, more, the more unsavory people were hidden away for a while. Have you met other scientists that actually worked on the project yourself personally for the book, or did you? Um, I did not meet. I, I spoke to relatives. Uh, there aren't many of the scientists who are still alive, um, but I did speak to uh, children and grandchildren. More interestingly, I spoke to the family of one of the early German Jewish interrogators of the paperclip scientists. You may have heard of the so-called Ritchie boys. These were German Jews who um, emigrate, immigrants who were in the United States that wound up joining the US Army and using their skills in German and knowledge of the country to, to help intelligence gathering efforts in, during the war. And I actually came across one of these um, memos written by a German Jew who interrogated the Werner von Braun rocket team in June of 1945, just a month after the end of the war. And I was so fascinated by this report that I contacted the family and they gave me this guy's diaries. His name was Walter wow. Jessel. What was it and, like? Uh, read, what me, was it like reading the diary? It was amazing. It was amazing because he was far more honest in the diary than he could be in the official report that he wrote for the army. And he said, look, I know these people. They're venal, they're nihilistic, they're ideological, they're lying to us. Some of them know their stuff. Some of them are pretending they know their stuff. Uh, you know, he was really uh, the first one to, to pull the wool, you know, pull the, the um, let me rephrase it. He was the first one to really tell the real truth about these scientists and not look at them as magical, mystical, genius figures, but to say some of them, a lot of them are actually just out, out to, to get a job and stay out of jail. And I found that to be really refreshing. And, and the guy knew his stuff and many of the things he predicted wound up being true, uh, but, he, but the US government and the scientific community was just more than happy to give everyone carte blanche and sort it out later. So who came up with the operation paperclip that we should bring Nazi German Nazis to America? Nazi scientists that is. No, it's, it's a combination of both the British and the Americans coinciding with the D-Day invasion. There was, an, there was an understanding and knowledge that there was a very impressive German scientific establishment that they're about to overrun um, within you know, months of landing on the beaches. So they created what were called T-forces or technical forces, intelligence units that were designed just for the exploitation of, of technology and the labs and the equipment that they know they were going to find. And they were joint American-British uh, operations. This was the beginning of paperclip. And both sides you know, of this, without, even though they're allies, it's still rather competitive. They both realized that not, this is far ahead of, many of the things here are farther ahead than we ever imagined. We need time with this. We can either exploit it in country, in, you know, in occupied Germany, uh, and then risk the Russians getting the same material, or we can be safe and take the best brains that we can find along with the equipment out of danger back to our home countries. So both Britain uh, and the United States did this, 
except that we had, the United States had far more resources and, um, and devoted more to this effort than the British could afford. And, but, it's, but we should say that the, Fran the French did the same thing. Russians, as you know, certainly did the same thing. But uh, the United States got the, the, the rocket team, and that wound up being the prized possession out of all these captured scientists and labs. Was it like a so it was obviously a race between Russia and so or the Soviet Union at that time, and America to get the best scientists first. How did they find? How did they work? They, they didn't work together, obviously, but like how did they? How did they do this? Yeah, it was. Um, they actually were supposed to work on it together. That was part of the original Allied agreement, but of course, secretly, everyone was doing their own thing. What I found to be ironic was that the United States was far more worried and complained far more vociferously about the French than they did the Soviet Union. The French were really just up to no good. They would kidnap scientists and push them into moving cars and you know, do all kinds of dirty tricks just to, to get who they thought was the best. And then they, in both the United States and the Soviet Union would complain to the Allied authority about what the French were doing. But of course, over time, the concern was dealing with the Russians. Uh, and they all operated off of something called the Ozenberg list. Werner Ozenberg was an SS adjutant who he was, I think his rank may have been Lieutenant Colonel, but he was, um, he had the job of compiling a list of all the talented German scientists that could be used in the defense of Germany uh, between 1942 and, and 1945. And the SS was gradually taking over this role of, of pinpointing scientists and putting them to work. Well, he knew that he had a valuable shit to play if he was ever captured. And so he uh, handed over that list or actually he tried to destroy it first, but it was recovered um, by the, the United States, by Polish intelligence who gave it to the United States. And that became the basis of the so-called blacklist that all these T forces used to find scientists. The Russians had similar information, but what they couldn't find, they simply would take a big dragnet and capture as many people as possible, interrogate them and sort out who was valuable and who wasn't, uh, which took a lot more time and wound up being not as effective as the US who had this very precise list of names. But everyone knew the, the, the rocket team, the V2 rocket team was the best you could really get. And most of them wound up working for the United States. I don't know if you can answer this question, but what made the German scientists so superior over, let's say, other countries? Well, one of the things I learned in researching the book, and, and I'm not a historian of science and technology, so I relied on many who were, uh, and they will say, first of all, that it's a myth that German scientists were the best and the brightest. It was one that was a very powerful myth that operated on the United States in particular, they called it the the, the um, great German inventive mind idea that they are somehow uh, the best and the brightest. Well, these books and these other authors will say, well, why did then why do we have the Manhattan Project? Why did we have you know these other initiatives? Uh, why did you know that we did not get the space because of a handful of Germans? It was because of the Jet Propulsion Lab. It was because of uh, you know all these other universities and their their wherewithal. Um, but the answer to, the two, to why these particular scientists were valuable in paperclip was that they chose to devote all of their energies and their efforts into 
ICBMs, an inter, the, the, a early version of the intercontinental ballistic missile. And even though it made no difference to the end of the war, it still was a revolutionary breakthrough. And um, taking, and what the United States and the Soviet Union got out of capturing rocket scientists in particular, was basically catching up on five years of, of um, development in a few months. And, and, that, and so by 1949, you could say both sides were pretty much uh, on the same playing field when it came to rocketry. Um, yeah. So you mentioned that it came kind of public in 1946, but how harsh, harsh was at the time this operation? Well, in the first, from, from the summer of 1945 until the fall of 1946, uh, it was very hush-hush because the Germans in the United States were on military bases, and, and many of them very remote, such as uh, Fort Sill, Texas, um, White Sands Proving Ground in New Mexico, which is in, you know an Air Force base, or back then an Army Air Force base. But they were all, but there were little packets of German Germans all over the United States that for that were very really kind of hard to hide for for too long. Uh, they were in Long Island, they were in Boston, they were in Virginia, they were in Ohio, they were in Texas and New Mexico. Um, and so eventually it was going to come out, and that's why the Army decided to break the story themselves in a very controlled way. And they sold it on, they sold the story as this. They are our former enemies, they are enemies, but we're going to use their brains to uh, get some sort of intellectual reparations. They use that word. No, we're not going to be paid off for all the expenses we poured into this war, but we can at least drain their minds and take what we can and, and go forth and conquer in a future war. What they didn't tell the American public is, and maybe they didn't even know it themselves yet, is that we're gonna make these people citizens. They're not here for a few months. They're gonna be here for as long as they want. That part they didn't really publicize, but it happened by the early 1950s, 90% of the paperclip scientists were US citizens. And that was a much more difficult pill for a lot of Americans to swallow. So we obviously had not Nazi hunters as well. And how did, did they find out some, somehow that there, there were Nazis working for NASA and the US government? Or did, they, did they let them know that they were, they were working for us now? They're, they're good guys now in a way. They did, and they were they were the usual the critics you might rely on of paperclip that were very loud and made a lot of noise in the press. Uh, they include the NAACP. Um, Albert Einstein himself wrote an editorial in the New York Times, just going off on President Truman for paperclip. You had uh, the American Federation of Scientists. You had the 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 people like. Um, um, you know, everyone who worked on the Manhattan Project were, were horrified. But when you actually did some polling in the United States, there actually is a poll that they, what you have a, a Gallup poll, which is the most popular poll. It, it, and you asked Americans how they felt about paperclip. They said they didn't like it, but what they, and so six out of 10 Americans were against it, but they also forgot about it rather quickly. It's kind of like, well, you're against it, but you also didn't think much about it. And then by the time the Cold War has, has really entered the popular imagination by the late 1940s, most Americans are willing to ignore what happened to the German scientists because they're now focused on the Soviet Union. And, the, and they think there's only a handful of Germans who are formerly Nazis 
so what? But what? if you were a, yeah. an American Jew, you were, you were bothered by it, or a scientist who, who feels threatened by this the presence, you, you, you don't like it either. Was there a worry that they would retry that the Nazi scientists would try to bring Nazi propaganda to the American people? Did they try to keep it under a certain control? There was a very real concern, and, and the FBI, I, um, one of the things my book does is I compare the files on these scientists that were put together by what will become the Department of Defense, and then compare it to what the FBI put together, and they're, they couldn't be more different. The defense files are like very thin, and they don't tell you much, and they actually were changed and taken in places to cover up some of the more embarrassing information, but the FBI even though J. Edgar Hoover, the infamous J. Edgar Hoover was found up being a, in favor of paperclip, his own agents did their job and got thick, you know, very well-researched files on their real activities. And many of them were unchastened Nazis. They, they were telling awful uh, Jewish jokes out in public. They were still out there um, uh, having little meetings of former, you know, celebrating Nazi holidays, and and the and the FBI was all over this, uh, but um, it, it didn't. Nothing really came of it, and they they kind of just assimilated. But there was a for a long time, the FBI did do a thorough job of, of tracking this stuff down. But but I should say most paperclip scientists were not that radical to begin with. The ones that were were either. Uh, went underground or some of them returned to Germany when as soon as they could and a handful and it's very true a handful did go to places like Argentina and where they felt more welcome and the United States sometimes helped them get to Argentina because they were embarrassing presences in the United States so it's, so a, whole, it's a rich story overall so they weren't worried that they were trying to start a fourth right there was some I, I have a whole chapter in my book about uh the State Department's opposition to paperclip, because one of the things that um, we don't hear often about is uh, who actually opposed this program. And the defense, the State Department, uh, they were very worried about the continuation of a, of a German presence abroad, just because the Third Reich was defeated. Why would you think it wouldn't come back? And they took it seriously. The, the military increasingly didn't fear this very much, but the State Department did. And one of their oppositions to paperclip was not only is it hypocritical, because we've been telling Central and South America, do not allow Germans inside of your countries to do, continue their work. Meanwhile, we're doing exactly that. Um, so they said it was illegal for one, but they also feared what they called the resurrection of an Axis um, center of power in a place like South America or even, or even Central America. But they were the minority voice in the US, the new national security bureaucracy of the United States, and they were silenced. And many of the ones who were outspoken found themselves um, in trouble with, uh, with uh, their own bosses. And also some of them were, were attacked by Joseph McCarthy and the anti-communist Red Scare gang uh, in the early 1950s, simply because they did oppose paperclip and dared to say so. Um, so the, it, there was opposition, but they were not ever going to win that battle in a Cold War environment. So I want to go back in time a little bit to 1945 and the end of the war. Did 
they did not the scientists of Nazi Germany realized that I could get away with this. I could join the Allies or Soviet Union. Or did they did they think this themselves, or did they think that I'm going to jail? I'm going to be hanged yeah. for this. You know, I think it was a, a little of all of the above. Uh, but every, I think, once the the noose was tightening around Germany, every one of these scientists took stock, and some of them willingly went into the Russian sphere of influence because even though we have this image of the Russians being, you know, just brutal and they're gonna they're gonna take everything and not and and force the Germans to do what they wanted, the Russians were actually very good at uh, seducing Germans with high pay. Uh, um, higher standards of living, you know, bring your families, come work with us. We don't care what you did. Uh, and, and the United States had to do the same. But there was a conscious decision among the Werner von Braun rocket team that they wanted to go work on the United States side of things. And they started to travel from east to west when, the, uh, when everything was falling apart. So Penamunda, which is the rocket complex, High up in the Baltic coast is solidly in Soviet territory, but the rocket team boarded trains and jeeps and whatever they could to get into what they knew would be the eventual American occupation zone or British occupation zone, and that's that's where we found them. So everyone was aware that they they could maybe sell their talents somewhere to buy time to buy. A, a standard of living and maybe eventually even a second chance at a career. Um, but for the but for the first year or so, it was more about how do I avoid prosecution? Well, I have some knowledge here that I can sell. And that was the biggest ticket toward at least delaying um, any extensive denazification process. So how did it, how did we know that they were scientists? Like did they go door to door knocking like, hey, are you a scientist? No, okay, next door, or did they just uh, use the paper yeah. that they gave them? Gave them? How did if they find know, the, the right houses, to so to speak? Yeah, the 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 blacklist were were at least had names on them, but it was very hard to to do exactly what you're saying. Like everyone's scattering to the four winds, and uh, you know there's no half of these cities are bombed beyond recognition. So that is why you had a the, uh, the, the bulk of the what they called the US Army Counterintelligence Corps was devoted to tracking down people on their list. Some of them for prosecution, some of them the big names like, you know, Julius Stryker and all the, you know, Albert Speer, you know, you wanna go after the big guys who you know you're gonna prosecute. But among them, they also had teams that were just searching out these scientists, and they did their job like good intelligence officers. They'd knock on houses, they'd bribe people with coffee and cigarettes. Do you know this guy? Where is he? Uh, some of them volunteered. You no, know, the real problem was not that they couldn't find them, but that too many people were coming up to them claiming to be valuable when in fact they were not. So it's not so much you had to hunt for people, it's that you had to distinguish between the charlatans and the people who were the real deal. And that was the case for both the United States and the Soviet Union. So, what when they, when they first found them? Where did they had? How did they manage to avoid trial in the Nuremberg trial, or any or yeah? Not did they were sent directly to America through a secret ship or secret plane? How did they manage to avoid prosecution in the Nuremberg? Well, this is one of the the really 
weird parts of the story is that the US government was at war with itself over this. You had certain offices in the US government or in the military occupation government were about doing exactly what you said of accountability for your actions. And that includes everyone who is a party member, an SS member, and then and making them go through a, a, uh, a trial. But another part of the occupation government, the, the army and the intelligence group are spiriting these people away so that they don't have to go through that process. And some of them do go on special ships and planes, some of them with the uh, unpackaged V2 rockets uh, in the same boat. They're, you know, they're off to the United States and no one can touch them. But um, most of the time, what the OMGUS, what it was called, the Occupation Military Government of the United States, what they would do is have every one of these scientists fill out a dossier. Then a, an intelligence officer would look at the dossier, which has all their affiliations. It would have, you know, I, I went, I was an SS guy. I was a member of this Nazi fraternity. I, I did th whatever it was. They, if, if the military officer in charge would take that dossier and say, you know what, I don't think you want to admit this and strike it out, <laughs> or mm. sometimes even change words for the Germans. You want to get your story straight. So one part of the U.S. government is coaching the Nazis to avoid prosecution from another part of the U.S. government. That was just really astonishing to see in on paper, right in front of you, uh, when you put all this all this paperwork of the scientists in, in one place. You see just how often the stories change, not because they're lying, but because some element in the U.S. government is helping them lie. <laughs> to get them expedited back to the United States or, or wherever they need to go. So they were assigned a lawyer or did it, they were they no lawyers. Yeah. Um, yeah, they didn't need a lawyer. They had, they had uh, the, um, they did, they would go through the State Department process, but all the offending people in the State Department, the people who were opposed to a paperclip, either were forced to rubber stamp the um, visas whether they're a work visa or a temporary visa, uh, or they uh, were shuttled off to a different job or they were fired if they opposed paperclip too openly and off you went. So it was a, it was a smooth process for a few hundred scientists and their, eventually their family members as well could come along. And uh, that was really between 19, um, late 1945 and spring of 1947 that this version of paperclip was uh, brought the lion's share of these scientists over. But the program itself changed names now and then, but eventually didn't end until 1962. I mean, well after, long after there was a Federal Republic of Germany, we're still bringing German scientists over and, and luring them over here to work for us rather than their now new democratic country. Now, I want to ask, what was the difference between, difference between the scientists and... What was the guy, name of the guy? It wasn't. He had a Netflix documentary. He was the butcher of. Uh, oh yeah, Klaus Barbie. What would, yes. Yeah. What was the difference between him and uh, this? Why did he have the trial? And when they were found, right. they they were led away. Was it because they were valuable to the state and he was not, or was it something different? Well, they're yeah. They're in some ways they're they're not too different because they both they went through the same similar processes. With a, with a few exceptions, uh, the paperclip scientists were not uh, war criminals. I mean, Klaus Barbie was clearly a war criminal. Uh, the, there were the, the one exi example 
of a paperclip scientist who legitimately was um, a U.S. citizen and had and had would not have been if he had gone through a real process was Arthur Rudolph, who was a senior NASA scientist and father of the Saturn rocket. Uh, he, it was discovered that he had um, ordered and witnessed the mass hangings of Soviet POWs working in the underground tunnels of uh, of um, of the V2 factories. And uh, he had lied about it and had people help him cover it up. When that came out, the State Department, the, sorry, the Justice Department created in the 1970s, the Office of Special Investigations to investigate people like Barbie and all these other Nazis living in America. And among them, they did find Arthur Rudolph had done such horrible things that he should either be put on trial or the diplomatic settlement here was that he was told to, to go back to Germany. And so he just went back to Germany. He was removed from the United States, stripped of his citizenship. But he also got to keep all the social security benefits and all the other things he got by working for the government. Um, but someone like Barbie and many others who were, the, who were valuable to American intelligence um, had what you might call information that was... Um, that was uh, valuable. It, it, they, they had valuable information, but it was temporary. You know, it, it was something that, like, like all good intelligence, it's going to be expendable eventually. Whereas the scientists, their minds were considered valuable and their crimes not deemed as severe. So they had, they could remain in the United States and the ones that were truly objectionable, you could either spirit them out of America to a place like Argentina, or in the case of Rudolph, you make a big public display to say, we're, we're, we, we are opposed to you and then let him live out his life in comfort back in his home country. Uh, Barbie, though, was a real hardcore criminal who you know, was, was responsible for thousands of deaths. The paperclip scientists could always say, well, I was part of the system, or, you know. The, you I was brainwashed. Yeah, or I, you, they're, they're, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a little different than um, I was just following orders, but not much. Right. Okay. So they get through, they get through the process of coming to the United States. We talked a little bit about this in the beginning, but what was the next step to bring them to NASA, NASA and work for the U.S. government? The you all most of these paperclip scientists, their visas were started out as six months of work visas, and they usually were living on a U.S. base. Um, because you didn't want them out in the public and they weren't considered citizens yet. But uh, then in order to, the ninth, the, it was, what this, this coincides with the escalation of the Cold War. 1950 is the very important year in the Cold War. It is the year that, first of all, uh, Korea, you know, North Korea invades South Korea. And that was a major escalation of the Cold War. There's a fear that it is just a prelude to an invasion of Europe itself. You have the McCarthy era kicking into high gear. The Soviet Union, months before this, had already tested a atomic bomb. China has been lost, quote unquote, lost to communism. Any reservations anyone had about Nazi scientists and whether we should care whether they're Nazis or not are thrown out the window by, by 1950. So this is a moment where you can expedite permanent um, status for these guys and eventually citizenship. Um, and the army 
uh, are, is usually their major employer, but some of them will go to work for companies that are working with the military like GE or um, uh, Dow Chemical, you name it. This is the birth of the military industrial complex. So if they're not working for the military directly, they're, they're allowed to work in private companies and they take control of their status. And, um, but how do you get to NASA is also a, a fascinating thing because the rocket team is working for the army in Huntsville, Alabama. There's a whole community of Germans living in Huntsville, Alabama. They are, they have a whole neighborhood that everyone called Sauerkraut Hill, you know, where all the, all the wealthy, you know, very well-paid civilian scientists are living in, uh, at, in the, the Southern mansions with, you know, African-American workers and uh, maids and nannies and things. I mean, it's a really bizarre scenario going on there. Uh, but when the decision is made to create NASA, uh, that is taking them away from the army and putting them in a civilian agency. And Dwight Eisenhower is your president here, who never really liked the Germans at all working for the United States, but he had to recognize their talent. One of the reasons he made NASA civilian was so that he could get these Germans out from under the military's thumb and make them more accountable as civilian employees of the US government. And that happened in 1959. So what kind of work do they do for the NASA and how do they affect, do they have an effect on the, on the moon landing at all, on the moon race to the moon? They did, in fact, uh, the, um, when Sputnik shocked the United States in particular, and that was October of 1957, Werner von Braun was rather furious because he knew that we had something on the launch pad that we could do right away and, you know, we could, we could have been the first and within a few months, you know, basically by January of 1958, we have done exactly what Sputnik is anyway. This made Werner von Braun a larger than life figure. And part of the success of, of not only the myth of how we give Germans all the credit here, but just for the, um, the legend of Werner von Braun himself is that he, he was a, uh, a darling public figure. He knew, he always was a brilliant advocate for himself and for the idea of space travel. And he was young and handsome and Disney loved him and he had a, a great media presence. So he kind of smoothed out the idea of, of and you know, the idea of Germans working for us could, could be seen, can seem almost normal now. And uh, the, so he was like the public face of, of the space race. But behind that, the reality was that there was only a handful of Germans still working at NASA. They had already done what they needed to do to get us to get ahead, which was to uh, update us on the V2 rocket technology that gave that bought us five years. What Vern Brown is really doing is he's managing a lot of scientists, many of them American trained, you know, trained in Georgia Tech and wherever else, that, that they're doing the work, but he's the public face of it. So I think we look at the movies like The Right Stuff or, or even, you know, uh, fiction things like um, Hunters and whatever else you know is out there these days. We look at Von Braun as this um, um, godlike figure, and that's mostly a result of our own mythologizing him in the press back in the late 50s and early 60s. He was really, he's a brilliant manager. That's what he did. He could take something that was a blueprint and he could mass produce it or build it rather quickly. And that's a real talent, but it's not a, a, um, an exceptionally exceptional mind that we all tend to 
still think of him as, as owning. He, he, he was a he was a, a great practitioner and he managed a large team of yes, Germans, but mostly American scientists at NASA. How did the American scientists, you touched a little bit about this, but how did they view working side by side with Germans? Was it? Right. At first it was really uncomfortable because not only were many of these American scientists Jewish, uh, and that's something that um, a colleague of mine named Monique Laney, she wrote a book called uh, German Rocketeers in the Heart of Dixie, but she talks about how uh, these uh, this community of Huntsville German scientists got along with the you know, local Jewish community, but also other Jewish scientists. That was obviously uncomfortable, but many other American scientists who didn't have that part of, uh, have that reason to be upset, were jealous and angry at their own government for somehow elevating this group of Germans above them or even as equals when they saw what they were doing as just as valuable uh, work. Uh, and so over time, um, they were blended well together. And especially by the 60s, 70s, even, you saw them as citizens of the United States and everyone kind of regarded Varna von Braun as an American by that point. Uh, but in those early years, it was deeply uncomfortable and, and, and they're, they're actually, uh, isolated from one another because of that. It was only in, after the early 1950s that they started to become blended teams. The Russians did the same thing, by the way. They kept all their Germans in separate communities, really until the time they kicked them out of the country in 1955. So can you, can you tell me, I think we touched on the basic here, but can you tell me a little bit about meeting the families of the scientists yourself? What was there? experience like what was your experience meeting them well you know it's interesting because i when i was doing the research i didn't seek out the family members i because um one i was writing a book about the u.s bureaucratic process of, of paperclip and the story about why the decision was made but when the book come came out uh many many of family members contacted me and, and were fascinated to know more about their things they didn't even know about their own, in some cases, grandfather. Uh, many of them wanted to know if they could have access to the files that their um, that I had about their family member. And it's interesting that they, you know, I can deliver that for them and they couldn't get it themselves. Uh, but it, it's it's usually not uh, the, none of the none of them of none of the family members were people that you would consider unsavory characters they were they were just engineers they were they had nazi backgrounds in the sense that they joined a equivalent of a union that everyone had to join or that they were went to university at a time where you had to join the party but i didn't find anyone who uh i felt nervous about talking to or felt really uncomfortable talking to because they weren't the worst of the worst they were just guys, you know, uh, and, all, and I should say this, almost all men, by the way, uh, maybe I think two or three were female scientists, but I found it interesting just how, how normal their experiences were and how these children, many of them in their 60s and 70s now, grew up as Americans, not even fully aware of what their father usually had, had ever done. They didn't really talk about it. They, they doubled down the idea that we're Americans now, and that's mm -hmm. most important. That's, that was a common thread. We are Americans and don't ever think of us any, as anything else. Thank you so much for coming in. Do you, I think we covered a 
basic of Operation Paperclip in this episode. And uh, do you have anything to promote before you go? Anything you want me to put it in the description? Yeah, I wrote a book after uh, um, Our Germans Project Paperclip and the National Security State. I wrote a book about uh, Holocaust imagery in science fiction and horror film and television. It's called Planet Auschwitz. It came out in 2000, uh, in 2020 with Rutgers University Press. That's available now. And I also do my own podcast with a partner, the parody called Wise Agreed Upon, where we talk about the intersection of film and history, how film and Hollywood portrays historical events, politics that go into that, the reception of film and TV about uh, historical events. And uh, we're working on season two now. So we're available probably on the same platforms that you're available on. Thank you so much. Again, thank you so much for coming. My name is Adam. This is Vivo.h12. We are available on Spotify, iTunes, wherever you can find podcasts on YouTube, well.h12. We are also on Instagram under well.h12. Next week, we will look, take a look at the Battle of Stiklesta, one of Norway's most defined moments on the end of the Viking Age. My name's Alan, and I'll see you next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.